Patterns are everywhere in Hollywood. I'm obsessed with them. And this one needs no explanation. It's 2003. MTV's Video Music Awards. What a goddamn time capsule. I mean, you have Madonna performing with Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, and Missy Elliott. You have Jimmy Fallon in the cast of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy giving an award to Beyonce. You have the Crank Yankers presenting voting procedures for the Viewer's Choice Awards. I didn't hear what you said. Who do you want to vote for? It cannot get much more 2003 than this. And when the night finally draws to a close, and it's time to give away the award for video of the year, you have Adam Sandler and Snoop Dogg sharing a stage, reading off a list of nominees with one massive outlier. The nominees for the video of the year are... Eminem, lose yourself. Missing misdemeanor Elliot, working. 50 Cent, in the club. Justin Timberlake, Crimea River. Johnny Cash, hurt. This moment would mean a lot to me in retrospect. I just didn't know it yet. I had just turned 11 when I got my very first iPod. It was a pre-Spotify era, a pre-iPhone era, in that time where basic MP3 players were all the rage. It really marked a moment of independence for me, a time where I could build my own taste in music, getting away from what I'd picked up from growing up with my parents. And yeah, it took some time, music wasn't free after all, and I only had so many iTunes gift cards I could play around with. It wasn't until two years later, an edgy 8th grader pushed hard into the grasps of puberty. I heard my first Radiohead song. The bells, the bass line, the melancholic lyrics delivered by Tom York's haunted vocals. It really spoke to 13-year-old me in only the way Radiohead can. Honestly, it sounded like nothing else I had ever heard. A far cry from the country and classic rock I'd grown up listening to. Within that year, my musical tastes exploded. The entire alt-rock scene of the 90s was a treasure trove, leading me directly into the New York City revival of the 2000s. The White Stripes, Interpol, the yeah, yeah, yes. I spent the early years of high school soaking up a scene that dominated the first half of the decade. And eventually... My old and current tastes converged into a single song. I don't know when I first heard Johnny Cash's cover of Hurt, but it was definitely before I dove into the Nine Inch Nails discography. To me, Hurt was an all-original Cash selection with nothing else quite like it. I mean... Sure, it felt depressive and haunted and sad, but it it was so incredibly cinematic, even when unpaired from its music video. This was a man singing a song at the end of his life about how miserable everything was, how everything had fallen apart on him over years of neglect. 
and he released it and literally died. And I wasn't the only one who was grabbed by it. It got picked up by alternative and country stations alike. It scored a posthumous Grammy for cash, and it even scored six nominations at those very same VMAs that opened our episode. The video of the year, you know, I got love for Johnny Cash. That's my nephew. I love Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash, this dinosaur from the 1960s, was getting MTV to honor his entire catalog. Justin Timberlake even called out Cash in his speech, admitting the award he just won should have went to him. It's not often that you find younger generations diving backwards into a sea of music made well before they came of age. And it's even rarer to see those same artists show up alongside Good Charlotte and Coldplay and Method Man. That success was a sign. These creatives, no matter how old they got, had a spark of life in them. These musical geniuses could get anyone of any age to connect with a song. And if you package their life stories into a recognizable format, a glitzy and glamorous package that combined art house cinema and striking visuals, you might just be able to get them in a theater, singing along and rushing out to buy that reissued Greatest Hits collection. Don't think for a second that Hollywood producers didn't take notice where this movement was going, because suddenly these ancient projects were dug up from development hell and issued to audiences one after another. That is, until it all came crashing to the ground. One that took 15 years to make, pursued by a single man who wanted to see the story of an iconic musician come to life. One that took nearly as long to spring to the big screen, a passion project by the subject himself who passed away before he could see his life story told to millions of viewers. And of course, one that managed to destroy the entire genre blowing up any chance of Oscar gold for nearly a decade. Ray, walk the line and walk hard. Oscar buzz, millions of dollars in box office receipts, and a takedown so brutal, it's still hailed to this day as one of the best parodies of all time. From Dog and Pony Show Audio, this is Don't Explain, an exploration of the film genres we love. I'm Will Saddleberg. Ray might have hit theaters in 2004, but that's not where our story begins. We're not there on opening night or sitting with Jamie Foxx in an audition room. We don't even begin with Ray Charles, the man whose story we've come to watch. As with so many Hollywood stories before it, we open almost two decades earlier, with director Taylor Hackford trying his damnedest to get his next project off the ground. He's a man with a vision, a dream, and lucky for him, the newly secured life rights to the story of Ray Charles. It's 1987 and Hackford is coming off a stretch of hits. His film An Officer and a Gentleman earned the attention of critics and box office analysts alike. He worked with Jeff Bridges, James Woods, and Richard Gere. 
He was about as made a man as you can be in Hollywood at the time, even lending his power to produce films like La Bamba, a rock star biopic in its own right. But really, Hackford had its eyes set on one thing, a cinematic retelling of the story of R&B legend Ray Charles. There was only one problem. No one wants to give him the money to make it. These are the days where, while Rockstar biopics weren't unestablished territory, they were risky gambles. You had your hits, your Lady Sings the Blues, your Buddy Holly stories, but it was far from the runaway genre it is today. And even if it had become easier to make a film about a black musician than it was in the early 1970s, how exactly do you get anyone to sign on to making a film about Ray Charles? A blind man who lived through such a complicated life, all while charting out new sonic territory with his talent. His voice was as specific as his mannerisms. Where on earth would you find someone to fill that role? Hackford shot the project all around town, again and again and again. He kept it in his back pocket, even while working on films like Dolores Claiborne and The Devil's Advocate. Even a string of flops couldn't keep him from getting steady work, but try as he might, one thing was for sure. No one was willing to bet some cash on a Ray Charles biopic, making back a single red cent. It's not until fate pairs him with Philip Anschultz, another man whose entire life had been dominated by chasing his passion, that Hackford finds himself with the opportunity to bring Ray Charles to the silver screen. By then, it's 2002, 15 years after Hackford's earliest attempts. Anschultz was no stranger to jumping between industries. He inherited his father's oil company, the Anschultz Corporation, in 1962, and although he'd kept his family's company in the oil well business, it didn't take long for Philip to expend to ventures well beyond the scope of energy. Railroads, real estate, newspapers. If it caught Anschultz's eyes, he tried it out. He co-founded Major League Soccer in the U.S., he purchased L.A.'s NHL team, the L.A. Kings, and he helped transform a handful of suburban publications into the Washington Examiner, a leading conservative website. Forbes has him ranked as the 66th richest person in the United States. He'd eventually become a pretty influential film producer in his own right, bringing films like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and Steven Spielberg's The BFG to the silver screen. And while his company, Walden Media, has largely focused on adaptations of children's novels, a sister company, Bristol Bay Productions, put up a handful of adult-oriented films in the mid-2000s. And none of them made quite as big a splash as Ray. Money, sports teams, and politics aside, Anschultz saw something in Hackford, and he saw something in the story of Ray Charles. The man was a trailblazer, like him, pushing into success that few could ever dream of having. That was enough for him to bet big. $40 million out of his own pocket, financing the entirety of the production. For the first time, Hackford had a green light from Hollywood's money machines. Now he just needed a cast and a crew. For the script, Hackford returned to an unknown talent he met back in the early 90s. James L. White wasn't new to screenwriting, but he had yet to have any of his projects developed into actual films. But 10 years after his initial meeting with Hackford and film producer Stuart Benjamin, White heard about the Ray Charles project once more. And this time, the film had money. But securing the rights to a project is a hell of a lot different from getting approval from its subject. And Ray Charles wasn't a man Hackford, White, or Benjamin looked forward to dealing with. 
It was White who had to deal the most with the man's prickly personality before they two finally found some common ground in their childhood experiences. White once told the LA Times in an interview that Charles opened up to him through the process. Whenever he was struggling to get a scene down on paper, Ray would simply remind him that White had been there to tie in his own life, his own experiences, with the life of Ray Charles. With funding acquired and a script in the works, there was one major hurdle left to clear. Who the hell is equipped with the skill, the focus, the screen presence to fill the shoes of Ray Charles? The filmmakers knew exactly who their first choice was. One of the greatest actors to ever grace the silver screen. A man who had five Oscar nominations under his belt. And as production was spinning up on Ray, was coming off his second win. You guessed it. Denzel Washington. Denzel politely passed on the role. First pick out the window, Hackford chose a more audacious route reaching out to Jamie Foxx to audition for the role. Foxx had spent the 90s primarily known for his comedy, scoring a role on In Living Color in 1991 before getting his own sitcom, The Jamie Foxx Show, in 96. Hey, what up? How y'all doing? Lakita, I told y'all I was gonna be on TV, girl. So, Wanda, tell us about yourself. Oh, okay, then, for real. It wasn't until Oliver Stone's 1998 film, Any Given Sunday, that Foxx was able to show off his dramatic chops, alongside the likes of Al Pacino and James Woods. He followed it up in 2001 with his first of three collaborations with Michael Mann playing opposite Will Smith and Ali. Hackford was impressed with the performances in both films, and once he learned about Fox's musical background, he'd been playing piano since he was three, it seemed like a match made in heaven. For the audition, Hackford arranged for Fox and Ray Charles to meet in the Legends Recording Studio, where Ray demanded the two play piano back to back. What key do you like to play blues? Oh, wait now. G, G. All right, well, let's play some blues. Key and G, right? Go ahead. I'm going to follow you. No, I'll follow you because I'm going to let you start it off. This just been played by that tempo. Go ahead. Fox managed to keep up, earning Hackford full approval on his choice in casting. He also signed off on the script, which had been specially printed in Braille. He objected to two scenes before filming began, one showing him uninterested in learning how to play the piano, and one depicting him showing Regina King's character, Margie, how to use heroin. Despite the stars finally aligning, filming was not as easy as Hackford probably hoped it'd be. The crew headed to the streets of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, the state where nearly the entirety of the film was shot. While there, Anschultz stormed off the set five times, demanding the film go no harder than a PG-13 rating would allow for. A film about Ray Charles, a man known for being a womanizer and abusing hard drugs, was limited to the same rating you'd give most Disney live-action films today. Regardless, Hackford finally listened, cutting the film to ensure he'd avoid a hard R from the MPAA. But man, no matter what you think of Ray, the movie, it's hard not to find Fox's performance pretty mesmerizing. He's not someone you'd think of as a method actor, no Marlon Brando or Daniel Day-Lewis, but he put the work in. 
He cut his hair, mirrored Charles's mannerisms, and even glued his eyes shut for 14 hours a day while on set. He only listened to blues, soul, and jazz, the same songs that were influencing Ray Charles during this portion of his life. He poured his heart and soul into that performance, and it paid off, but it didn't make filming any easier. And then there was the loss of Ray himself. Despite arranging an appearance for the man to coincide with the film's premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival, Ray Charles passed away in June of 2004. Still, there were some bright sides. Universal Pictures might have been one of the studios to pass on funding the film, but they were delighted to pick up distribution rights, ensuring that audiences across the globe would be able to see the story of Ray Charles in a theater. It probably helped that one of the Universal executives used to literally hitchhike to see the man live. By the fall of 2004, all of the struggles, the heartache, all in the past. It took 15 years, but Hackford could finally breathe a sigh of relief. Funding, casting, distribution, even Ray Charles' own approval of the film. No matter how long it took, it had finally fell into place just right. His efforts paid off, and not just at the box office, although the return on investment for Ann Schultz was exactly as he'd hoped for. Critics fell over themselves for Ray, especially when focusing on Fox's performance. Roger Ebert himself gave the film four out of four stars, and he wasn't the only one. At the Oscars, Ray was up for four awards, of which it won two, Best Sound Mixing and Best Actor, where Fox managed to beat out guys like Don Cheadle and Leonardo DiCaprio. He even joined Al Pacino as one of the only actors to get nominated for actor and supporting actor in the same year, scoring recognition for his performance in Michael Mann's Collateral. A heaping sum of cash and recognition from critics and awards alike. It seems like it was enough to put Ray into the history books, cementing it as one of the greatest portrayals of a living legend of all time. All the cast and crew had to do was wait and let time carry them into film history. Here's the issue. I don't think Ray is a very good movie, especially considering the praise heaped onto it when it premiered in 2004. For better or worse, and mostly for worse, Ray effectively takes the rockstar biopic template established by films throughout the last three decades and etches it into stone. The constant flashbacks, the epilogue ending, the brilliant spark that causes a hit song to be written on the spot, it's all here, and it's aged so poorly with time that it's hard to take seriously these days. Georgia, Georgia, the A dated presentation wouldn't necessarily be the worst thing in the world if the movie surrounding it was still passable. We as the audience love tropes. It's why superhero movies continue to do so well at the box office. Unfortunately, Ray's style of filmmaking is hopelessly outdated. I mean, literally, I'd go as far to say it feels like a cable movie of the week, something you'd catch on A&E in the afternoon alongside that Great Gatsby adaptation that a pre-anchorman Paul Rudd is in. Unsurprisingly, the entire film is anchored by Jamie Foxx's turn as Ray, a performance that is absolutely undeniable, even if it begins to feel like a parody of itself in the final few minutes of the movie. His dedication on camera aside, Fox is constantly betrayed by the script, the direction, and the editing. Often, all three at once. At two and a half hours long, 
Ray's script effectively looks to cover every single major moment of Ray's life. Leading up to the late 1960s when he heads to rehab and finally kicks his drug habit cold turkey. Rather than telling the story from Ray's childhood up into his stardom, the film employs flashbacks, accomplished by the screen flashing red at random points in the story while we return to the past to explore the man's life. The story of Ray's brother drowning while he helplessly watches is used as an explanation for how the man went blind, effectively kicking off his loss of vision as a punishment for not saving his brother. Never mind that Ray was already losing his sight when his brother drowned in real life or that he tried to save him from drowning without standing by in shock, if you ask Ray the movie, his loss of vision is a direct result, a punishment from God. It feels cruel, and what's more, it feels completely disconnected from the man we're watching in the present of the film. Although Ray's past intersects with his story a few times, primarily through flashes of water seen only in the man's head, it doesn't come into a head until the final moments of the film, when Ray's laying in rehab. That scene is meant to be dramatic and heartbreaking, but as the grand finale of the film, it feels completely out of place. The sudden shift in tone, the use of shaky cam, the close-ups on Fox's face, all of it feels so over the top, it's tough to take seriously. And, perhaps its biggest sin, it really fails Fox's performance. It's a problem we're going to see again and again in this genre. Rather than trying to do a subject justice by zooming in on a specific part of someone's career, the standard rock star biopic has to cover everything, from birth to present day, and depending on the time frame of the artist, probably death. And instead of feeling like something engaging, like the definitive work on someone's life, it ends up feeling like an excuse to shoehorn a dozen of the musician's most famous songs into a single film offering an extended music video sequence without much more. And for some people, that's enough of an excuse to head out to the theater. But if you're hoping to see a cohesive story, something engaging that challenges the medium as a whole, or even kind of just makes sense as a story, Ray isn't the film for you. In fact, Ray can't even commit to translating its stars in life into a slideshow presentation of his greatest hits. Rather than following Ray throughout his entire life, the film comes to a dramatic halt following a stint in rehab, a portion of the movie that takes up, at best, 10 minutes of the runtime. A title card lets the audience know that Ray never again abused heroin before flashing forward to the late 1970s, just in time to see the Georgia State Senate declare Georgia On My Mind the official state song. It almost feels like after two and a half hours, the film ran out of money. But Hackford has declared this abrupt ending to be purposeful. According to the crew, the film ends when Ray Charles' life just stops having conflict. It's another example of a moment where the film could have been improved simply by zooming in on a portion of his life, narrowing the scope to fully examine one of the many hardships or hurdles Ray Charles managed to overcome. And instead, the film feels bloated and structureless, like a Wikipedia article being acted out by past and future Oscar winners. Of course, many of these weaknesses only come with the benefit of hindsight, and indeed, the critical and commercial success of Ray meant the Rockstar biopic train was bound to keep moving. In fact, only 12 months later, another music legend would light up cinemas everywhere. Ah, 
came to the rugged West with a purpose. I'm a doctor. We don't need her help. And found prejudice and hardship. If you're going to survive, you better learn to make it on your own. In a country where it's... Let's back up, because the story of Ray isn't the only project getting pitched around Hollywood in the 90s. In 1993, CBS premieres a brand new Western, Dr. Quinn, Medicine The sweeping saga of a beautiful adventurer in an untamed land with Joe Lando and starring Jane Seymour as Dr. Quinn. Medicine Despite Woman, airing on Saturday nights, it manages to score surprisingly big in the ratings and over its six-season run attracts a ton of guest stars from the world of country music. Willie Nelson, Kenny Rogers, and Tricia Yearwood all make appearances throughout the show's run, but its biggest name by far appears really early on. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash shows up on the fourth episode of the first season as Kid Cole, a role he would reprise on three more episodes in future seasons. It's no secret that the 80s and 90s were a rough patch for Cash creatively. Although his supergroup The Highwayman did manage to make a pretty big splash, his solo career was sputtering. 1984 saw the release of The Chicken in Black, a song that, depending on who you ask, was produced either to protest Columbia Records' treatment of Cash, or happily signed on to by him as yet another comedic song in the tradition of a boy named Sue. I said, Doc, I've got to have my whole brain back. He said, I'm sorry there, Mr. Cash, but I can't do that. He said, I put your brain in a chicken last Monday. He's singing your songs and making lots of money. And I got him signed to a 10-year recording contract. Whatever the reality was, the result was the same. Cash had egg on his face, and after Columbia shelved several of his records, he left the label. Cash's career would, at least creatively, come bursting back to life with his 81st album, American Recordings, released in 1994. If you're a diehard Cash fan, you already know what this album entailed. The first collaboration between the country legend and producer Rick Rubin. This partnership would lead to some of Cash's most popular songs of this day, including his covers of God's Gonna Cut You Down, Personal Jesus and, of course, Hurt. I will let you down. I will make you But we aren't there yet. This is 1993, and as much as Cash might be a legend among country music fans, his image has no doubt waned since the 60s. Instead, he's filming on the set of Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, and no matter what you think of CBS Westerns, you have to admit this is far from his fulsome prison image. But creative opportunities can happen at the most unexpected of times, and it's on the Paramount set where Cash and June Carter meet James Keach, the director of the episode, and star Jane Seymour's husband. The couples become close friends. Seymour and Keach even named one of their sons after Johnny Cash, who served as the godfather. A couple of years later, as Cash is beginning to produce some of his most interesting music in decades, he asked Keech, who directed a couple of feature films himself, if he'd want to make a movie covering his life. While rockstar biopics weren't really a thing yet, the musical biopic was well established at this point, even if it hadn't hit the awards bait highs of the 2000s. It was rare, however, for the musician to be this involved at this stage. Stars like Billie Holiday and Buddy Holly were long dead by the time their biopics came around, and even a star like Tina Turner was largely hands-off in getting the actual film made, instead helping behind the scenes once What's Love Got to Do With It was already in production. 
Instead, Cash sat down for a series of interviews, eventually leading to a screenplay to be written in 1997, penned by Gil Dennis, one of the writers behind Disney's Return to Oz. Much like the Ray Charles biopic, however, no one was interested. Recent films covering the lives of Tina Turner and Selena had done fine at the box office, but they didn't blow up the charts, and both of those films covered musicians with far more recent hits. Sure, Johnny Cash had become an icon in the 1960s, but 30 years later, a creative resurgence didn't matter. He was far from the sort of star he needed to be to convince Hollywood to take a chance. But as it happened, director James Mangold found out about the project just as it was getting shopped around his studios, and as a lifelong Cash fan, he wanted in. In 1999, with Copland and Girl Interrupted under his belt, the latter of which won Angelina Jolie an Oscar for Supporting Actress, Keach let him come onto the project, and he took to rewriting the script immediately. More interviews with Cash, more time spent focusing on June, but it was still missing something. Some key ingredient that would make the entire movie click into place for the filmmaker, and hopefully future audiences. Finally, Mangold manages to get an admission out of the couple that changes everything. Cash and Carter had slept together, long before they were eventually married. One night in Vegas, early on in their relationship, it changes everything, and the rest falls into place. With his 2003 film Identity, Mangold now had several hits under his belt, and was even in negotiations with Columbia Pictures to film a new adaptation of Elmore Leonard's 310 to Yuma. It didn't matter. Sony, the parent company for Columbia, wanted nothing to do with the project after initially developing it. Neither did Universal, Paramount, Warner Brothers, none of the major studios would touch it, just a year out from Ray's future Best Actor win at the Oscars. It wasn't until Fox 2000, the indie arm of 20th Century Fox, agreed to make the film that production could get underway. A full decade after talks of a Johnny Cash biopic started on the set of a CBS Western, The Man in Black was finally coming to theaters. I was going to take her down to see Carl Perkins in Jackson. Oh, Oh, in Jackson? Yeah. Well, I thought you maybe going to Kalamazoo or Springfield or some... J Jackson. It's not far. Jackson. Oh, don't yeah. let him fool you. He's trying to get away without me. Oh, this the song goes. oh <laughs> this is where I go out, too. We got married in a fever Harder than a pepper's We've been talking about Johnny Cash and June Carter both died in 2003 just weeks after sharing the story of Vegas with Mangold. As it happened, Joaquin Phoenix, quickly cementing his place as an A-list movie star, met Johnny Cash at a dinner party and, well, praised his performance in Gladiator. Sort of. Um, well, I was invited over to dinner at his um, a friend's house mm -hmm. and um, went over and it was an amazing experience. I, I can't tell you what the, what that's like, I and mean, words can't describe um, what it was. They're, John and June were just um, beautiful people, and they sang this song um, together and looked in each other's eyes, and and, um, and it was just beautiful spiritual. And, and then I had to leave, and John stopped me as I was walking out, and he was a real fan of this movie, I did Gladiator. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> he said, my favorite part is, uh, when you said your son squealed like a girl when they nailed him to the cross and your wife moaned like a whore as they ravaged her again and again and again. <laughs> I love that part. 
I mean, the most sadistic dialogue ever committed to celluloid. Right, right. And that's what that. that's what he like. If anything, the story proved this. While Ray Charles might have objected to certain portions of his life shown on celluloid, especially when it came down to the woman he loved, Cash was a much more sadistic man. There was free reign to live and portray the life of Johnny Cash. Despite Mangold's support, Phoenix initially didn't want to take on the role. But once the film got the green light from Fox, he flew out to L.A. to start working on the music with composer T-Bone Bennett. Reese Witherspoon, meanwhile, was just as essential to the film. Her performance as June Carter might be the best I've seen for this podcast so far, as she switches between her bubbly onstage persona and the real woman behind the scenes. Her career wasn't as far along as Phoenix's, on an awards level at least. Witherspoon had received critical praise for her roles in Alexander Payne's election and, of course, Legally Blonde, but it was Walk the Line that would eventually bring her to the Kodak Theater, where we first started our rock star biopic journey. Neither actor knew they'd be required to do their own singing. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends out for the But Walk the Line was shooting for authenticity, not an imitation of real life, but a retell. Despite the differences between the singers' and actors' voices, the cast worked with vocal coaches to ensure they could perform the songs required from the film. Walk the Line premiered in the fall of 2005, playing at festivals like Telluride and Toronto before releasing wide ahead of Thanksgiving. Cash and Carter had both passed away before the film had begun shooting, but their legacies were larger than ever. There's no doubt that Cash's cover of Hurt by Nine Inch Nails cemented the film's fate at the box office. It grossed nearly $200 million worldwide, a haul so large it held the record for the highest grossing Rockstar biopic for a decade. And... In retrospect, it's easy to see why. Walk the Line is a classic four-quadrant movie, appealing to all four movie-going demographics. Men, women, over-25s, and under-25s. Some college kids might be able to recognize one or two Ray Charles songs, but every edgy Brooklyn hipster knew who Johnny Cash was when Hurt hit the airwaves. And with a female co-lead in Reese Witherspoon, it wasn't just men who were automatically attracted to the film. And just as Ray before it, Walk the Line won the hearts of critics everywhere. Ebert gave it three and a half stars, praising the performances from both leads while cementing the rock star biopic with a rubber stamp. Here's what he wrote in 2005. Walk the Line follows the story arc of many other musical biopics, maybe because many careers are the same. Hard times, obscurity, success, stardom, too much money, romantic adventures, drugs or booze, and then... If they survive, beating the addiction, finding love, and reaching a more lasting stardom. That more or less describes last year's Ray, but every time we see the story, the characters change, and so does the music. And that makes it new. Despite Ebert deducting half a star from his review, I hold a very different point of view. Walk the Line is undoubtedly a better film than Ray, even as it struggles with similar pacing, editing, and script issues in its first half. It still, at times, feels like it's running through a greatest hits of Cash's life to get to what it really wants to focus on. The relationship between Johnny Cash and June Carter. You're my best friend. Marry me. Okay. 
outspoken interviews about the changes he made to the initial script, which is still co-credited to Gil Dennis. He worked to get the film away from what his then-wife and producing partner, Kathy Conrad, called an ABCD form of storytelling, something that went scene by scene without, as she told the New York Times, emotional energy or conflict. It's the exact problem that Ray struggles with, and once you know the adjustments Mangold was working behind the scenes to implement, it's impossible not to see what he added to the script. The best parts of the film are when it slows down to focus on two people, June and Johnny. The breakneck pace of the first 45 minutes fly through everything the film thinks we need to know about Cash. The death of his brother, his father's disappointment, his time in the army, his marriage to first wife Vivian, and his earliest musical ambitions. I'm not here to say that none of that matters, almost all of it ties back into the film during the second half in some way or another. But it can't get away from feeling like you're flipping through a biography and reading every other page. It's not a movie, it's a collection of facts, moments scattered throughout Johnny Cash's life that fail to add up to much more. That is until you introduce June Carter. Chemistry between Phoenix and Witherspoon immediately lights up the screen, grabbing audience members who may have been checking their Moto Razors or whatever phone was popular in 2005. It's such a breath of fresh air, it makes it difficult to watch the scenes between Cash and Vivian, his first wife. The script completely fails to make Vivian's motivations clear. She initially wants Cash to ditch his music dreams for fear of living in poverty and squalor, only to become shrill and cold once he hits it big. Obviously, the real-life Vivian had good reason to be frustrated with her husband, but this film completely fails to sell her side of the story. The back half of Walk the Line slows down, focusing almost exclusively on Cash's troubles with addiction and his unrequited love of Carter. This is where the film manages to work the best, even if it still struggles with some of the structural issues left over from early drafts. Thankfully, it avoids the nastiness films like Lady Sings the Blues brings, both through better writing and, arguably, because Hollywood is more understanding of white men than black women. It does fail in other ways, though. For example, the film opens with Cash reminiscing on his life before he takes the stage at Folsom Prison, arguably the most famous thing he ever did. And as an audience member, that moment sits in the back of your head from the second you see it. Here, the filmmakers are promising that you, yeah, you, you're going to get to experience what Folsom's inmates saw decades ago. Up close and on the big screen. I've seen a thing or two, you know. Well, that was till a moment ago. Because I got to tell you, my hat's off to you now. Cause I ain't never had a drink this yellow water you got here at Folsom. And then the film gives it a few minutes of screen time before hastily moving along. In many ways, Walk the Line is the best example of the rockstar biopic formula in its purest form, 
the artist is honored, the supporting roles are overcast, and the lead actors pour everything they have into their performances. But most of all, it squeezes in every hit song it can, even if it has to rush through its plot to do it. Cash's struggle with addiction, his efforts to get clean and revive his career after collapsing on stage, his love for June Carter, all building to this performance in Folsom Prison. That's the movie. Everything else can exist in the background, but for Walk the Line to truly achieve cinematic greatness, it just needed a better sense of focus. But hey, at least it has an actual ending. Freeze frame or not, it's more than Ray can say. Ebert said it best. Walk the Line was just like Ray in nearly every way just with an all-new soundtrack substituted in its place. It's a thought that plenty of theatergoers had in 2005, walking out of the multiplex with an empty bag of popcorn in hand. Maybe they even cracked a couple of jokes about what these movies had in common. If they'd been made a decade later, you can hear the late-night hosts now joking about how Samuel L. Jackson shows up at the end of Walk the Line, telling Johnny Cash that he's putting a team together, offering him a deal. Any genre, when it gets popular enough, is ripe for parody. You've seen countless spoof films, a genre that's nearly as old as the concept of film itself. Think Austin Powers, not another teen movie. Even Shrek pulls double duty while making fun of classic Disney characters. Around this time, Hollywood is full of parodies, and for the most part, they make solid bank at the box office. There's no doubt the rockstar biopic was ripe for a movie poking fun at it. But considering the amount of time and effort it would take to create all of those songs, design an entire life around a fictional character. It seems like it would be more effort than it was really worth. But one man had the connections and the clout in Hollywood to do more than make a couple of jokes about it. Jake Kasdan had caught both flicks in theaters, and it didn't take long for the idea of a feature-length parody to start brewing in his head. And it just so happened that Kasdan knew the hottest comedy producer in town, Judd Apatow. Hello. Hi, this is Allison. I don't know if you remember me. I have something I really need to tell you. I'm pregnant. With a baby? Yes. Then what are you hitting on me for? In 2006, Apatow has already established himself as the king of modern comedy, a title he would hold for well over a decade. His style of low-concept flicks mixed with improv made cinematic stars out of Seth Rogen, Jonah Hill, Bill Hader, Paul Rudd, Jason Segel, Danny McBride, and so many others. And coming off the success of The 40-Year-Old Virgin, it seemed like any project Judd Apatow slapped his name on was guaranteed to find success. At the same time, Apatow was accepting comedy ideas from any of his friends and colleagues, and Jake Kasdan knew exactly what that project was. He called up Apatow and pitched a direct parody of the Rockstar biopic, a film that would span the entire life of a made-up musician, down to the successes, failures, breakups, and problems with addiction. It used original songs, all while poking fun at a trend taking Hollywood by storm. He even had a name picked out. Walk Hard. Judd Apatow kept his response simple. I am so in. Ray and Walk the Line proved themselves both to critics and to box office analysts, but it took 
years for them to get financing. Ray literally needed an oil baron to come in and get the project off the ground. But with Kasdan's rock-solid pitch and Apatow's blessing, the studio pitch for this new project was a whole lot easier. 45 minutes. 45 minutes after calling Apatow, Kasdan had a green light from Sony, the same production studio that had turned away Ray and walked away. It would turn out to be a massive financial mistake. Obviously, Ray and Walk the Line were the films Kasdan and Apatow, the two credited screenwriters on the film, turned to for the majority of inspiration. You watch these three movies back to back like I did, and you'll learn real quick just how much they have in common. But the duo didn't limit their inspiration to just these two most recent efforts. They watched everything. And what they found were the tropes. A treasure trove of tropes. Now you all know what I'm talking about here. Disapproving parents, lovers at first sight, cameos from other musicians that were popular at the time, constant references to whatever time period the movie found itself in. Even small touches like the main character constantly being referred to by their full name whenever anyone walked into a scene. It all made the script, which slowly became a complete takedown of the rockstar biopic genre, revealing every magic trick the filmmakers had up their sleeves. If they were lucky, Walk Hard would be a movie that showed packed audiences everywhere how these movies functioned from beginning to end. Hopefully, it would also be hilarious. Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, has all the makings of the next great Apatow hit. It just needed to get two things right to land the punches. An all-star actor, capable of laughs and dramatic chops in the same scene, and a soundtrack both musically on point and hilarious in one go. Luckily enough, Kasdan and Apatow knew the right people for both. First, the lead. Dewey Cox, as a character, had the tragic backstory of Johnny Cash with loss of sense coming from Ray Charles. In this case, smell. You needed an actor who could sell the audience that this man, this joke, was a real living legend while keeping the humor as high as possible. There's really only one man for the job, a man whose resume can include three Paul Thomas Anderson movies and Talladega Nights. There's something I want to get off my chest, and it's about that summer when you went away to community college. I got an offer to do Playgirl magazine, and I did it. I did a full spread for Playgirl magazine. I, I mean spread, man. I pulled my butt apart and stuff, and... I was totally nude, and it was weird. I I mean, you probably didn't hear about it because I went under the name of Mike Honcho, but I just wanted you to know that. If you could hear me, if it got into your brain somehow. And that's John C. Riley. Kasdan and Apatow told Riley that he was their first and only choice, and the actor signed on to star. Although at the time he felt he might not be able to mix comedy, drama, and singing all in one performance, he took it on anyway. Giving and... I know this might be heresy, but giving the best lead performance out of this episode's trilogy of movies. I really mean that. Walk hard. Hard. Down to get the music right, composer and musician Michael Andrews was brought in to act as the music director. 
He arranged a number of collaborators to work together on more than 100 song ideas, 40 of which were completed, and 33 made it into the film. Mike Viola, who received an Oscar nomination for his work on the title track for That Thing You Do, and folk musician Dan Byrne wrote many of the songs in the soundtrack, with Byrne using his folk chops to nail the Bob Dylan-inspired tracks during Dewey Cox's 60s period. Kasdan, Riley, Apatow, and musician Marshall Crenshaw teamed up to write the title track, while a handful of other artists contributed to some of the film's best cuts, including Guilty as Charged and Let's Duet. I don't give a damn what anyone thinks I stay up all night and I smoke and I drink in addition to Dylan and Cash, the music team pulled from the likes of Ray Orbison, who, of course, makes a cameo in Walk the Line, Buddy Holly, and Merle Haggard. Unlike filmmakers working on, you know, actual biopics, no one on Walk Hard had real songs to pull from. Everything had to be written on the spot, fitting into the movie narratively, while keeping the audience engaged and laughing and, you know, sounding good. It's the tightest tightrope anyone could have ever had to walk with Viola and Byrne punching up lyrics day in and day out from a room at a Best Western. The only way Walk Hard works is if the songs are both funny and good. If they're just funny, they're fleeting. If they're just good, the film doesn't work as a comedy. And luckily, Walk Hard has both. I'm guilty as so naturally, it resulted in one of the best movie soundtracks of all time. Not only is every song in Walk Hard hilarious, but most of them stand on their own as works of art. The film might have missed out on Oscar attention, but the Grammys and the Golden Globes both gave the soundtrack a nomination. It's impossible to undersell just how much the film depends on the songs being funny and good. But they nailed it. I mean, how can you not laugh listening to every double entendre listed in Let's Duet? In my dreams you're blowing me some kisses That's one of my favorite things to do You and I could go down in history That's what I'm praying to do with you Let's do it In ways that make us feel Meanwhile, as the film started to shoot it required the same level of attention to be paid on every other aspect of the production. Comedies don't necessarily need to look like a million bucks on screen, but with Walk Hard directly parodying Oscar-bait biopics, it needed to match the style, down to the color grading and costume design. Sets had to be built for one-scene gags, look at the Beach Boys parody alone, which required an entire studio to be constructed on stage for a scene that lasts what, a couple of minutes in the last third of the film? It's filled with a full orchestra and dozens of other musicians, lines of percussion instruments like chimes and bells and timpanis, and as the audience, we only see it for a few minutes on screen. Riley channeled his own Jamie Foxx, essentially leaning into method acting to ensure the character was believable. They brought in up-and-coming comedy actors to fill in the rest of the cast, picking from Apatow's previous projects, SNL alums and current cast members, and sitcom stars like Jenna Fisher. Cameo appearances from Jack White, Frankie Muniz, Eddie Vedder, and the late great Harold Ramis helped round out the pack, making for one of the best, hey, it's that guy, casts you could have asked for. Let's do it. Let's do it. 
At the same time, Kasdan and Apatow were aware that they might just be making one long inside joke, a film that would fail to connect with audiences on the same scale that showbiz folks had been won over. After all, if your stereotypical Midwest family only heads out to the theater a couple of times a year, are they going to want to spend that visit on a movie about a fake musician? At Christmas time? When the film was scheduled to debut? All of this work came together to make what might just be the most effective parody ever put on screen. The likes of Mel Brooks and David Zucker might have landed some huge blows with blazing saddles and space balls and airplane, but few movies can claim to nail as many jokes as Walk Hard did. Only through meditation can we begin to understand our role. We're nothing but grains of sand. That was freaking transcendental, Paul McCartney. Don't you agree, John Lennon? Yes, Dewey Cox. With meditation, there's no limit to what we can imagine. Because films like Ray and Walk the Line were massively popular, and because they pulled from the same template, it almost seems like the movie wrote itself, and while that's obviously not true, there's a massive amount of attention and talent required to pull something off like this, the results seem effortless. From the earliest flashbacks with young Dewey accidentally killing his brother, pushing his disappointed father to constantly claim that the wrong kid died, a line, I might add, that is so close to Robert Patrick's actual line in Walk the Line that it might as well be copyright infringement. To the visual chart transitions showing Dewey's popularity getting ripped off right from Ray, nearly every moment in this film pulls from another beloved classic. Not to mention our knowledge and familiarity with how these movies are made. Also, it's funny. Like, I know that sounds simple. It's hard to overstate how important that is. I mean, this is a film with, like, dozens of quotable lines from this is a dark fucking period to Dewey's nurse in rehab simultaneously demanding more and less blankets. And also, like, everything with Tim Meadows. I mean, just listen to the weed scene. Get out of here, Dewey. What are y'all doing in here? We're smoking reefer. And you don't want no part of this shit. You're smoking reefers? Come on, Dewey. Join the party. No, Dewey. You don't want this. Get out of here. You know what? I don't want no hangover. I can't get no hangover. It doesn't give you a hangover. Well, I'll get addicted to it or something? It's not habit-forming. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know. I don't want to overdose on it. You can't OD on it. It's not going to make me want to have sex, is it? It makes sex even better. Sounds kind of expensive. It's the cheapest drug there is. Hmm. You don't want it. I think I kind of want it. Okay, but just this once. Come on in. It's so good. Again, Meadow steals every scene he's in. There's a reason this film plays so well, especially holding up well beyond the works it's poking fun at. The jokes are funny, the music's catchy, all of this is true. But what really works, what really makes this film feel like a breezy watch and not a two and a half hour slog, is how much time it devotes to its main character's downfall. Unlike Walk the Line and Ray, Walk Hard doesn't have to step around the feelings of its star character. It can really revel in how messed up he is, how many mistakes he's made, without it sounding like bullying. So when you get to the end of this movie, and Dewey wins back the respect of his family, and his wife, and sure, 
gets his sense of smell back. It's funny, but it's not just funny. It's also rewarding in a way these other films can't quite nail. And even if you don't notice that at the time, it's hard to miss on a rewatch. Unlike the movies it was parodying, Walk Hard didn't make its debut at some red carpet gala ahead of a fancy film fest. It premiered in LA a little over a week before its wide release. And generally speaking, critics were won over by Dewey Cox. To return to Roger Ebert one last time, a man who obviously had love in his heart for rock star biopics, he gave the film three stars, praising Riley's turn as a character who managed to work both dramatically and comedically. He also spent the entire last paragraph writing about a penis showing up in one of the shots. I'm serious, go look it up. The gratuitous nudity, as Roger called it, really caught him up as he completely missed the point that, you know, penises are funny. Unfortunately, box office results didn't match up with the critical response. Obviously, one of the main issues I've already addressed, releasing a relatively niche hard R comedy ahead of the holidays, feels like a recipe for disaster, and it basically was. The 2007 writer's strike was ongoing, so the usual run of late-night shows, your Letterman's, Leno's, Gobert's, all off the air. Instead, Sony gave the cast and crew enough budget to do a limited seven-city tour with Riley in character as Dewey Cox, and as much fun as that probably was to do, it didn't result in getting the one thing Walkhard's producers probably hoped for. Butts and seats to see your movie. Six months before Dewey Cox springs onto theater screens everywhere, another Judd Apatow-scripted comedy gets released. Knocked Up, which Apatow also directed, opens to $30 million in the number two slot behind the third Pirates of the Caribbean movie. It eventually grosses nearly $220 million worldwide. Apatow served as a producer on Superbad, which also hit theaters that summer. It opens at number one, scoring $33 million and eventually making $170 million worldwide. These are comedy hits through and through, building on the success he had with Anchorman and The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Walk Hard opened at number 9 on the box office charts to $4.1 million on its first weekend. It grossed about $20 million worldwide total on a $35 million budget. It bombs so hard, it can't beat Knocked Up or Superbad's opening weekends, even when counting international dollars. Everyone involved in the film took it hard. I mean, how can you not? This was a passion project through and through for everyone involved making this movie, from Kasdan and Apatow all the way down to every actor making a single cameo appearance. John C. Riley would later say that he felt personally responsible for the film flopping. Judd Apatow's daughter described the face he made when receiving a phone call from Kasdan about the poor performance as the saddest he's ever looked. Jenna Fisher told her agent that she didn't know how to make a better movie. For most of the people involved, it felt like the end of the world. Putting something you care about more than anything you've ever worked on, something that came from your heart, watching the entire world look at it and shrug. It has to be one of the hardest things 
any artist can go through. And if this podcast was a rock star biopic, I guess this would be the part of the movie where the singer hits their lowest low. Funny thing about that part of the movie, though, it's not usually the end of the story. See, while Walk Hard flopped at the box office, its genre parody stylings were designed to age pitch perfect. Unlike similar films hitting theaters at the time, your scary movies, your epic movies, basically all the blank movie entries, Walk Hard had more in common with Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz. These movies that took a look at an entire genre's worth of films and said, there's something inherently silly about these movies, and that's why we love them. From the beginning of the film, with Dewey Cox staring off into the distance before the biggest concert of his life, the movie knows exactly what it's doing. It never loses focus from the subject. It always relates its jokes back to the tropes that every rock star biopic had employed on their way to box office success and awards gold. For my money, it's one of the funniest comedies of the 2000s, and I'm far from the only one who feels that way. In the decade and a half since Dewey Cox burst into empty cinemas on Christmas Day, it finally found the cult following that, in retrospect, it was always destined to have. See, Walk Hard is just like the artists that star in the movies it parodies. At a massive fall from grace, but the passion, the artistry, and a little bit of time was all that was needed to bring it back into the spotlight. You have to wonder if a Dewey Cox Seven City reunion tour happened today, following the same roadmap laid out weeks before the original movie premiered, if it would sell out theaters. Hell, it might actually sell out arenas. And while box office failures can often spell doom for the lead creatives behind a project, there's no need to cry for anyone who worked on bringing Dewey Cox to life. Judd Apatow's legacy is historic, from directing Knocked Up and Trainwreck to producing films like Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Step Brothers, and, funny enough, pop star Never Stop Never Stopping. And wouldn't you know it, that musical parody flopped at the box office, too. Meanwhile, Jake Kasdan went on to direct Bad Teacher and Sex Tape, the former of which was a straight-up comedy smash hit when it premiered in 2011. He once again produced both films through Sony, where he eventually landed a job directing Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle. That movie grossed nearly a billion dollars worldwide, which probably made up for his earliest failures at the box office. The same can't be said for the Rockstar biopic, though. Flop or not, Lockhart had exposed all of the white ring, the bubblegum and paperclips holding these films together. And if there's one crowd that did turn out to the theater for Jake Kasdan's film, it was Hollywood insiders who all realized one thing. No one would ever take the standard rock star biopic seriously ever again. It needed a full-on reinvention, a rethinking into just what made us interested in musicians in the first place. Otherwise, any project looking to build off the success of Ray and Walk the Line would find itself dead in the water. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. Next time on Don't Explain, we look at the death and rebirth of the Rockstar biopic. As the genre disappears into the indie scene, only to reemerge bigger, bolder, and more successful than ever. Get on up. Straight out of Compton, Bohemian Rhapsody. Performances and productions so massive, they were impossible for audiences and for the Academy to ignore.
Don't Explain is written and edited by and starring Will Sattler and executive produced by Justin Robert Young. Credit to The Ringer's Doobie Cox Ain't Dead, an oral history of Walk Hard, American Cinematographer Magazine, The New York Times, and The Washington Post, which, along with other contemporary news articles, retrospectives, and archived video, made for the bulk of our research. Dog and Pony Show Audio.